Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Is the West in the grips of a progressive hysterical epidemic comparable to the Salem Witch Panic? My guest this week, Andrew Doyle, suggests precisely that in his book The New Puritans, which argues that gender ideology, and particularly the extreme dogmas of trans activists, together with the fantasies of critical race theory, are dragging society into a sort of alternative reality that resembles a fanatical religion, one which doesn't have to employ its own ideological police because actual police forces, along with almost every other powerful institution in society, including the churches, has signed up to this new Puritanism. Andrew Doyle has a doctorate in Renaissance poetry from Oxford University, so he's well acquainted with the postmodern manipulation of language and epistemology that have equipped proponents of so-called cancel culture. He's also himself someone the new Puritans would dearly like to cancel in his role as a broadcaster, comedian and creator of Titania McGrath, the painfully woke Twitter parody account that has in fact been suspended several times for poking fun at people who enjoy being satirised about as much as your average witchfinder general. Here's my interview with the redoubtable Dr Doyle. Well, Andrew, we all think we know what you mean by the new Puritanism, cancel culture, wokeness, critical race theory. But your book actually rejects the laziness of much of our categorization. It looks at the way Marxism mutated into a movement for the manipulation of culture, how postmodernism, which was always jargon-ridden, turned into impenetrable language games, quite sinister language games, how gender ideology and critical race theory emerge, and they're not necessarily the same thing. We're dealing with a very complex sectarianism here on the one hand, and on the other hand, we seem to be dealing with a mob. Yes. I wonder if you could explain this paradox It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, no wonder everyone's confused. Um, This is one of the things I wanted to outline in the book is that actually this movement is quite sprawling and has all these various strands that are interdependent, but not identical. And therefore, people struggle to understand where they've come from and what they want. At the same time, they have intellectual foundations, these academic foundations, but they behave, as you just rightly say, like a mob. This is where we get this cancel culture from. And of course, they their success in permeating all of our major institutions, be they cultural, educational, political, even law enforcement, uh, the way they've done that is largely through intimidation. I mean, ultimately, they are scary people and and people are scared of challenging them. I mean, these, these ideas are often dressed up in very complex academic jargon, but they really do lack substance once you burrow down deep into them. And people are intimidated by the jargon, first off. So they feel that they just can't possibly understand it or challenge it. And what I was trying to do in the book is is make those ideas accessible and comprehensible so that we might be able to push back against it. But at the same time, call for a greater degree of courage because the social justice activists who subscribe to these ideologies are in the minority in all generations. They just wield a disproportionate degree of power. And so what I'm suggesting is if, you know, if, if more people weren't intimidated by the mob, every time the mob takes down someone like a Kathleen Stock 
or a Joe Phoenix or any of these people they've targeted, it makes it harder for other people because they don't want it to happen to them as well. So they just keep quiet. And this is why when politicians are asked to define the word woman, you can see the fear in their eyes and, and they, they immediately start to blather and obfuscate, even though they know that we know they know the answer. You certainly can see the fear in their eyes. I was very startled, actually, although I suppose it stands to reason. But when you say in the book, I think quite correctly, that there's no majority support for the new Puritanism in any generation. No. I mean, some of the fiercest advocates are well into middle age, but even among middle-aged people, there's not majority support for it. I'm fascinated, of course, by the comparison, and I hope you are treating it really as an analogy when you say that the new Puritanism is a religion. It's notoriously hard to define religion. And one is constantly reading that such and such a secular phenomenon is not just like a religion, but a religion. And you don't fall into that trap. But I think it's fascinating that you begin your book with Salem, with the witch trials, which are just a manifestation of a particularly toxic and I've fallen into the trap of using one of their words now, but a particularly toxic theocracy, the only theocracy actually that's ever existed in the English-speaking world, which was New England during the 17th century and the early 18th century. It was the only time that dogmatic Christianity ruled entire societies, ruled entire villages, and the local preacher was effectively the dictator. And it was a time of fear. It was also a time of the manipulation of language. There is an analogy with a type of Christianity. It is, I think, specifically with, as I say, the only theocracy that the English-speaking world has ever seen. And I don't think it's an accident somehow that political correctness, to use one of the many, many different categories that you discuss in your book, emerged from Gale, which was one of the bastions of the culture of ultra-dogmatic Calvinism that controlled New England at that time. Yes, I, and I'm trying to be very careful. Um, I mean, I understand that people will be concerned that what I am doing is, in, sense, in a sense, denigrating religion or Puritanism per se by drawing these comparisons, but it's all about trying to find an accessible shorthand so that people can understand the nature of the movement. And there are all sorts of parallels to be drawn with the Puritanism of New England, and particularly with what happened at Salem. I'm very clear that I, I, I'm aware that they weren't witch hunters as a, as a norm. This is a particular moment that happened, a particular short-lived, just over a year, this short burst of hysteria that captured this entire community. And the, the, the key point, I suppose, the key parallel, is that it was perpetuated by the elites. It was, it, it was the ministers and the magistrates who did this. You know, it, these girls were crying witch on all sorts of people, and they were claiming that the only evidence that was used to secure these prosecutions were what they call spectral evidence. In other words, the girls saw them as witches. They saw their spirits fly out of their bodies and pinch them and choke them and attack them. So spectral evidence, the closest analogy to what we are experiencing is lived experience. The phrase lived experience, people will say, I have no evidence for this other than my lived experience. And, and therefore you must take that on trust, which is even the, the way the police operate in terms of hate crime. They specifically say on their website today that uh, it is about the perception of the victim. And note that they don't use the word complainant, they use the word victim, and they say the perception is what counts in the recording of hate crimes. So there are all these parallels, but this point you make about the, the minority, it's always a minority. Well, the more I read about Salem, the more I realised how many people just knew that it wasn't real, how many people clearly could see through this, including those in power. You know, whenever the girls were to accuse, started accusing 
very powerful figures, such as the Reverend Samuel Willard, who was the acting president of Harvard, when they did that, the magistrate said, no, you must be mistaken. You must be thinking of someone else. Let's move on. When the, 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 the colony's governor's wife was accused, there was no arrest. They, they, they were very selective in terms of who they allowed the girls to accuse. And that suggests to me that they weren't entirely sold on the witchcraft that the girls claimed to have observed and seen. So in that sense, I think that's a strong parallel with what's happening today, because we see it wouldn't matter if it was just Twitter activists screaming these fantasies, saying that there are fascists in every shadow and that gender critical feminists are working for the far right and JK Rowling is an evil transphobe, even though she's never said anything transphobic. It wouldn't matter if all these people were screaming online about that, if those in power weren't capitulating to their demands. If we could switch denominations to the Catholic Church, something that I found very, very striking in your book is a passage where you say transubstantiation may be a dogma of faith in the Catholic Church, but research suggests that a majority of Catholics believe it to be a merely symbolic ritual. And that's perfectly true. Research does suggest that. And it's also heretical in terms of Catholicism to believe it to be a merely symbolic ritual. That is the essence, actually, of Protestant belief about the Eucharist. Um, It's what, for example, the New England Puritans believe. Then you say there are parallels to be drawn here with the debate over gender identity ideology. For believers, a man can become a woman, or in some cases has always been a woman, by simply declaring it to be so, even without undertaking any cosmetic changes. The individual retains the accidents, part of the vocabulary of transubstantiation, of maleness, but the anatomy, the X chromosomes, the ability to produce spermatosa, but the substance is female. What struck me about that is I asked myself, is it possible, I strongly suspect it's the case, that if you dig deep enough, you will find that people who claim to be entirely submissive to transgender ideology will harbour the same sort of doubts that the average Catholic does about the fully-fledged doctrine of transubstantiation. That, in fact, asserting that something is true isn't actually the same as actually believing it. And the claim that gender and even biological sex are social constructs These are such extraordinary propositions that they really must surely test people's faith or or common sense, if you like, deep down. Well, you know, we're in the realms of sort of speculating about people's private beliefs, aren't we? But um, there is certainly some evidence to suggest that uh, these beliefs are not always sincerely held. I mean, wasn't there a recent case of a hereditary peer who was trans, who was who was trying to acknowledge the the biological maleness in order to secure the peerage. I think there was some story relating to that. In other words, they were trans when it suited them. I think we've all all known trans people and we've all always, out of courtesy, referred to them as the sex that they wish to be referred by and and used the name that they wish to use, etc. And the pronouns, it's always been a polite polite fiction, hasn't it? No, No one has authentically believed that that person has changed sex because no human being has ever changed sex. So, but, but that's a, a courtesy we're all, because we understand that some people suffer from gender dys- dysphoria and for whatever reason, they, they have to live their lives and present as the opposite sex or undertake surgery, which is not easy. And it's, it's a pe- very painful undertaking. And so we, we take that seriously and we treat people with kindness and respect and dignity. And I think all of that is really, really important. But what we don't do and what we've never been asked to do before is to surrender our belief in the truth, to d- disregard reality. So it's not just that we we are willing to participate in the polite fiction uh, that people have changed sex, but we are expected to 
assert that it is the case. And it's also people in positions of power. We now have leading medical journals saying that sex is binary. So the ideological capture has got to the very top. And what that means is everything feels slightly destabilised now. The very notion of truth, the, the, the activists are continually gaslighting us. In other words, they are continually t- telling us to deny the observable reality before our eyes. And I think that's a more fundamental problem with this movement, is the, is the, it's the rejection of truth and the idea that there is there are just multiple ways of knowing. In those terms, the girls of Salem were seeing witches. They were signing the devil's book because that's, that's their truth. That's their perception of reality. And so therefore, in, in the world of critical social justice or the woke movement, whatever you want to call it, it is real. It's the same as the, the CNN reporter when he reported from um, Wisconsin and there were, he was saying these are mostly peaceful protests and we could see the burning cars and buildings in the backdrop. But if you describe something as mostly peaceful, it makes it so in this postmodern world in which our reality and our understanding of reality is entirely constructed through language. And that, I feel, is very dangerous. It's, it's, it's always been a flaw with the postmodernists, and it's, it's, it's why they've always been ill-equipped to deal with the visual arts and dance and those kind of things, things that don't involve language. They, they don't, they don't quite know quite what to do there. They've got their grips into music, classical music, though. But if I yes. could just focus on one specific thing, which is that postmodernism has been around for a long time. You mentioned Derrida and, and Lyotard and, and, and Foucault all have been dead for ages. And so the notion that empirical evidence is ultimately socially constructed and can be set aside by, it wasn't called lived experience at the time, but nonetheless can be set aside as something that's been very familiar in the academy for a long time. But now these ideas are being enforced in society. And one of the paradoxes that emerges from your book, and it's a very powerful paradox, is that these people who spent all their time complaining bitterly about white hegemony and urging everybody to condemn white hegemony and to, if you like, confess their own white hegemony, they can only achieve their desired ends by co-opting institutions of society which are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly bureaucratic and hierarchical in structure, such as, for example, the police. That, That paradox is very striking, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's one that uh, I think Foucault would have had a field date with because it is a, a massive power grab for all their uh, attempts to tease out the power structures that are latent in society in order to subvert them. They are essentially perpetuating their own uh, power structure by, by asserting control over, over major institutions. And this is the way that it is achieved. And, and you know, the, I, I think I, I wasn't surprised that all of this emerged from the humanities, of course, because you're, you're, de- you're dealing with the metaphysical there in the study of literature and the arts, and etc., but that it would migrate to the sciences now is something that I think few people really expected, anticipated. I mean, that, you know, you have academics now problematizing the idea that two plus two equals four, uh, almost like they're trolling us, almost like they're deliberately choosing that refrain from 1984 uh, in order to push their agenda. You have, as I say, medical journals talking about sex being a spectrum. You have one of the stories I mentioned in the book is the New Zealand government trying to introduce Maori origin stories into school science curricula because it's another way of knowing. And so you have well, along, alongside scientific discovery and the pursuit of truth through, through empirical evidence, you have, you know, the world was, human race was created by the god of the forest and, the, and raindrops are the tears of another goddess. And, and, and the people who complained about this, the scientists, the academics who wrote an open letter saying, we, of course, we respect indigenous cultures and we don't want to denigrate them, but those beliefs have no place in a science class. 
they were then attacked. So it's being enforced by this threat of cancellation, by this, you know, it's very real. However, I mean, I know the chief practitioners of cancel culture often deny its existence, but so many people are now routinely either passed over for promotion or simply uh, are fired or just have their reputations trashed because of this method. And it's a means of control. And now that it's reached into the police force as well, and you have the police basically enforcing an ideological agenda that they don't fully comprehend. I even saw today on Twitter, I just tweeted it out, a, a clip of a gay pride parade in Cardiff where the police officers are forcibly removing the group of lesbians because lesbians are there are, are now an enemy of the LGBTQ plus movement. So they are, I mean, they've been described as the paramilitary, paramilitary wing of Stonewall, and that's a frightening position to be in. And one of the things that I find hardest to understand and most sickening to observe is the extent to which these traditional powerful institutions seem to welcome the undermining and trashing of their own traditions, their own values, their own impartiality, and almost to say, well, you know, bring it on. Please accuse us of more crimes to which we can plead guilty. And it's observable, not only in the humanities, not only in the sciences, not only in institutions like the police and the BBC, but also, this is my particular interest, in the churches. Um, We've seen the Church of England, for example, become insanely preoccupied with accusing itself of racism. Now, it's it's a very irritating organisation. It's racist, perhaps, in the sense that um, it hasn't, so far as I know, promoted an awful lot of black bishops recently. But in terms of lived experience, you really do have to live in the sort of fantasy world, I think, to imagine that the lived experience of most black Anglicans is one of racism that is directed towards them by their fellow Anglicans, which is a point that Calvin Robinson has often made. It's incredible, isn't it, that that it's a self-destructive movement. I've even seen classics scholars uh, effectively say that the study of classics ought to be abolished because it is fundamentally white and male and uh, all of those things. So it's bizarre that it would infect the churches as well, but that just goes to show how powerful this can be. I mean, I even spoke to um, an evangelical Baptist from America who apparently the uh, the Baptist Church, the evangelical wing of the Baptist Church has been infected by wokeness and they started having sessions about intersectionality and the Bible. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, and the, the, it, the church, as you say, comes up with these very incoherent ideas grounded in the notion of, of lived experience. Uh, any uh, studies or data that contradict this notion are disregarded. You know, we, when we had the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, which was a very rigorous study, you know, I took some issue with some of the conclusions, and I think that's healthy. But the study in of itself showed that there isn't evidence for, for example, institutional racism in our school system. Because if there were, why would it be the case that uh, white pupils are performing so badly in, in respect to other uh, racial groups? So it would be a very odd kind of racial targeting if that were the case. So, but that, that was completely attacked. And the, and the authors of that report were personally attacked and smeared. I think, wasn't Tony Sewell, uh, didn't he have an honorary do- doctorate? taken away because... So it was, was one of the reasons they went after Calvin Robinson, was that um, he'd voiced yes, support for this. And it, it was done in a very secretive and a rather rather sadistic way. And that's why it rang a bell when you pointed out that the new Puritans are unable or unwilling to engage in debate without assuming bad faith on the part yes. of their opponents. And that seems to that seems to apply right across the board from, you know, elderly... Anglican bureaucrats to young student activists to you know, anybody on Twitter. 
And yeah. the assumption of bad faith on the part of people with whom you disagree, which is a problem for both the left and right, nonetheless does seem to be particularly acute on the left. Absolutely. It, 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 it's always been a thing that is more prevalent on the left than the right. The tendency of right-wing people often, they can be very dismissive of left-wing people, but they often consider them naive or even stupid or just ignorant, whatever. But they don't consider them morally evil on the whole. I mean, I know that does happen, but, but not so much. On the left, there's always been this tendency to perceive the right as evil, malevolent, as opposed to simply wrong. And that's something that I think is a sign of stunted development intellectually. I think it's a, a kind of infantilism. But that, I think, is a major problem. Stonewall, for instance, has a no debate policy explicit. I mean, I invite them most weeks onto my show and they, they obviously never, never do. Because the belief within this ideology, and it's difficult to nail down. I mean, you've had people like Nadia Whittam, I believe it was, the Labour MP saying that debate is a kind of fetish. And we should, she said we mustn't fetishise debate. And it's difficult for people to understand. But what it means is they perceive debate as a concept to be a means by which the privileged are able to uphold their privilege. And so therefore, even to have the discussion is, is problematized in their worldview. And therefore, what this means is they have to take a dogmatic approach and they have to insist that theirs is the right way. And those who do not subscribe to their view must be cancelled to use their parlance. So um, that, that's where we're at. And of course, that is there's a reason why I've invoked the notion of the counter enlightenment, because I think what we're, what we are experiencing here is the counter enlightenment. It's a direct uh, repudiation of, of the idea of evidence-led epistemology and truth and investigation and discussion. And I think its malign consequences could be greater than we realise, because something mm. very odd is happening on the right, specifically the Catholic right in America. Now, you mentioned complaints about the fetishization of debate. Now, I have come across the same complaint about the fetishization of debate from people who would classify themselves as integralists or common good constitutionalists or post-liberals, mm. uh, mostly Catholics, mostly populist um, Republican believers in big government, some of them admirers of Trump, most of them, some of them not so much. Their attitude is that it is a given that secularization or secularism, which they paint with a very broad brush, is yeah. a religion, and they will refer rather crudely to the setting up of the Idol of Progress or whatever it was in, the, um, in Notre Dame during the French Revolution, and implies yes. that this is the same thing is happening today. And what they also imply is that this can only be fought by subjugating democracy to the common good, which means in practice what's been called a Christian or Catholic Sharia. Theocracy yeah. would be wrong because it doesn't entail necessarily handing power to... It doesn't mean that the Pope, for example, would, would be a secular ruler, although everybody, everybody would ultimately have to recognise his spiritual supremacy. But nonetheless, this is a very odd outcrop of yes. the spread of progressive ideology in America. And it's very influential in Catholic circles at the moment. And that, that's worrying and baffling and bizarre at the same time. Yes, I mean, I, I've been... I'm endlessly surprised about how much this has taken on because so many of the tenets of critical social justice, whatever branch of that you, you look at, seems to flatly contradict the belief systems of Christianity, as far as I can see. I mean, the, 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 the idea that we all have a, an innate gendered soul that may or may not match our biological makeup, I mean, that, that, I don't see how that notion is remotely compatible with Catholic doctrine. I don't think it can be. And so how is it, 
I mean, maybe you can help with this because I don't know how it is that the, these institutions that, that, that rely on tradition, that are rooted in scripture, how is it that they are susceptible to what I perceive to be a movement that is, that is an existential threat to them? Well, there's two things going on. Um, on the one hand, people on the left of the Catholic Church, the left of Christianity, left of Judaism, let's go back to James Davison Hunter's brilliant book that I'm always citing, Cultural Wars from 1990, where he, where he said the big split, the big ideological split would be within denominations rather than between them. But the left identifies in a very direct fashion with left-wing critical theory and is yes. very keen to abase itself. Meanwhile, you have this new phenomenon of a reactionary right which seeks to replace the certainties of left-wing dogma with um, the certainties of, the, the person they always cite is St Thomas Aquinas, and to try and enforce that on the public or bully the public one way or yes. another into making this the basis of a new polity which is entirely different from the free market capitalism and the liberalism, um, the old-fashioned liberalism that they, like the new breed of Marxists, both despise. So it's a, very that... it's a very peculiar development, but it has been called, I think quite accurately, Catholic Sharia. Apart from a belief in big government, it doesn't have very much in common with the sort of straightforward, self-abasing secularization of the churches as exemplified, unfortunately, by the present pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, does all this just point to the, the perpetual appeal of authoritarianism and ultimately a, a need to impose your values on anyone else? I mean, that is the essence of Sharia. You, you, you can't just disagree with it and move on. Isn't that, isn't that what this is about, really? This is a new way, this is a new authoritarianism. You do wonder if during the second half of the 20th century the appeal of authoritarianism in the West decreased, perhaps as a, as a response you know, both to the Second World War and totalitarianism, yes. and now it's coming back. But on the other hand, it's difficult in such a fragmented society, I would have thought, to build any sort of consensus. And this is, I think, what I really want to ask you. Mm. Whether you think there's truly the sort of consensus that can lead to society-wide transformation as a result of these incremental changes. It looks, as if, it looks as if there might be, but it's not under the umbrella of an ideology in the way that it would have been 100 or you know, 75 years ago. Right. I mean, but isn't that what the Liberal Project was all about? It was about reaching a consensus about how we ought to treat each other. And it, and it worked. I mean, I don't think there's any way to deny that since the, the, the civil rights luminaries of the 1960s, we have had incredible progress when it comes to redressing issues of discrimination. And so the yeah. success of that project, which is now completely undermined. I mean, if you read the, the foundational text of of critical race theory, people like Richard Delgado are explicit in their opposition to liberalism, you know, and they say that this is an, we are an anti-liberal movement. If you want to read Mark Bray's book on Antifa, this new, this sprawling, nebulous and anti-fascist movement, again, he says we are against liberalism. Liberalism is the problem. And they, they, they claim this because they say we live in a society where, where for all our legal equality, Racism still lingers and sexism, homophobic, these things still linger. Well, they linger because we're dealing with human beings, you know, and that, the fact that we haven't eliminated those prejudices, which is not something that I don't think is possible. They use that as evidence to suggest that social liberalism has failed as a, as a project. 
Whereas actually, social liberalism never made the claim to be able to reach that utopia. It's, a, it's, it's an ongoing inch meal affair. And it's not an ideology. So it, it's, it, it is about societal consensus. And I think we've sort of, we almost really, we have reached it. In a, like Just before this new culture war kicked off, I mean, you would be very hard pressed to find someone who was openly racist or openly homophobic. Yeah. You, you know, those, yeah. those people, there was a social contract, wasn't there? There was a kind of consensus. And like I say, I'm not saying racism was eliminated, but the racists knew to keep their mouths shut because they knew it was not in their interest because society did not approve. And I think that rather than an authoritarian top-down dogma that says this is the way you must behave, this is good, this is bad, you, you have this kind of gradual progress. And as I argue in the book, I think the, the social justice activists think they are making progress, but they're mistaking progress for change. They, they are changing society, not progressing society. In my view, they're taking us in a regressive direction. So, And yet, uh, as you say, there is no majority support for the new Puritanism in any generation. And I no. do begin to wonder, particularly when I look at the bizarre aspects of the trans debate, whether we'll reach a moment where the average person will say, come on. You're taking the piss. I'm not having yes. my kid being, you know, fed hormone blockers or, or whatever it is. I do well, wonder if the attempt to involve children in gender ideology will finally lead to a backlash that begins to fragment. I think there are signs that that could be the case. I think like Salem, you know, the hysteria began very quickly and ended very quickly. I think it might be the same with this culture war. This all it escalated massively during the summer of 2020 with the killing of George Floyd and, and it, it, it spiralled out of control. But I think it might wind down just as quickly, hopefully, because, as you say, once you go after people's kids, people will be hitting that brick wall of reality at that point. You know, they we've already seen it with the closure of the Tavistock Clinic. I mean, of course, yeah. we've of course, that, you know, the majority of young people who are confused about their gender ultimately once once the matter has been resolved naturally through puberty, end up just living lives as gay adults. Um, the majority of the kids who have been fast-tracked onto puberty block blockers are, are just are gay kids. A lot of them are aut autistic as well. And so what you have is a situation where supposed progressives are calling for the medicalization and sterilization of gay children to fix them in terms with heter heterosexual norms. Now, that is so outrageous. It's almost to the extent that I don't think people really could believe that was happening. And that's why it's taken so long. But now the Tavistock is closed. We've, we've talked about the potential of up to a thousand lawsuits from families whose children have been put onto this pro procedure. But I think so much of it is because people, A, don't believe that something so outrageous could happen, such as intact males being transferred to, male rapists being transferred to women's prisons yeah. because they identify as female yeah. and then going on to commit sexual assault, which has actually happened. I think people just don't believe that could happen, but it has. And similarly with what's happened to the children and what was going on at the Tavistock. I mean, the staff at the Tavistock had a dark joke where they would joke about how that soon there'll be no gay people left. They knew what they were doing. And I, I think once people understand it more, read it more, don't just take... Because the, the culture warriors use language and they, they, they seek to redefine language, and this culture war really is about who gets to define what words, um, they use the language that is the opposite of what they mean. So when they talk about trans conversion therapy... They, they rely on the good nature of people who, who associate that in their minds with gay conversion therapy, literally, you know, hooking gay men up to electrodes and trying to forcibly change who they are. But that's not what trans conversion therapy means. Trans conversion therapy is, is that process where a therapist and a specialist will, spe will speak to a child who is suffering from gender dysphoria and say, maybe there are other reasons that talk about 
you know, potentially autism, internalized homophobia, whatever it might be. That process of that therapeutic process, which would have prevented so many people from being wrongfully fast tracked on puberty blockers, is now described as conversion therapy. And so you have good natured people like those Labour politicians holding up those signs saying ban trans conversion therapy now. But what they're actually saying there is we support conversion therapy, because if you ban the therapeutic procedure, you are converting gay kids. That is conversion therapy. So when language means the opposite of what it says, it's maddening. And I think I think a lot of this is just that people don't understand what it is they're supporting. And like Salem, it cannot be sustained. I hope not, because ultimately, I mean, Salem collapsed because it suddenly occurred to the deputy governor to write to the leading clergyman in the country to ask whether spectral evidence is admissible in court. And they all came back and said, no, it's not. And so all of the prosecutions had been secured on something that was inadmissible and it collapsed overnight. And I think ultimately we will have to wake up to this idea that lived experience is not sufficient. That we used to know this, we used to call it anecdotal evidence and we used to say we can't redraw policy or draw, draw societal conclusions on the basis of one person's perspective. We used to know it and we've forgotten it. And once that comes back, I hope it will, it will collapse. And once sufficient numbers say there are no witches, then the, 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 the vision will dissipate. That's my hope anyway. My hope too. Andrew, your book, The New Puritans, I think is an extremely important contribution to this debate. And I urge absolutely everybody to read it. Thank you so much.